I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm joined for today's episode of the Meta Hour by author and teacher Omid Safi. Omid is director of Duke University's Islamic Studies Center. He specializes in the study of Islamic mysticism and contemporary Islam, and frequently writes on liberationist traditions of Dr. King, Malcolm X, and is committed to traditions that link together love and justice. He has written many books, including Progressive Muslims, Cambridge Companion to American Islam, and Memories of Muhammad. His most recent book is Radical Love, Teachings from the Islamic Mystical Traditions, 
which we'll spend some time talking about today. Amit is a longtime columnist for On Being, which is how we first connected, and is also the newest member of the Be Here Now Network podcast family, hosting his own podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Sharon. It is so lovely to be with you and with your listeners. I'm, I'm so delighted always to talk to you. Uh, I feel so close to you. I was, somebody said to me, um, it was very funny, uh, we were talking about uh, the On Being columns, and they said, you know who my very favorite writer is, forgetting that I also write for them? My very favorite writer is Omid. And, I, and then they looked at me and they said, I'm so sorry, I meant apart from you, of course. And I said, no, no, he's my favorite writer too. That's right. Well, you know, I think maybe they have just imbibed uh, you're teaching so much that it's become <laughs> like air, you know, invisible to them. Well, it was really funny. The thing I, I commented uh, to this person was that the thing I always found so remarkable about your writing is that you're so fast. You know, something will happen in the world and I'll be laboring. Like, how do I say what I feel? And it's so complicated. And can you introduce love even here? And, you know, and you'd be out there with it, you know, and I think, oh, now I don't have to write it. He wrote it. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, I mean, it's in some ways it's a it's a gift. Um, it's also something that I um, think about and and sit with because I think particularly in a world in which with one click you can be sharing beautiful teachings and beautiful experiences, or really come face to face with trauma and suffering mm-hmm. all around the world. I think there's also really the need to sit with suffering and to be silent and to absorb it before it passes through us. And I do sometimes worry that with the rush that there is to speak and to comment and to analyze, um, that somehow we're depriving ourselves of the need for the solitude and the silence that Mm -hmm. I think we all deserve. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think sometimes we're just not afforded that luxury. Yeah. No, it's very true. And what a complicated world. Yeah. And a beautiful world. And a beautiful world. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm really curious, was Islamic mysticism like a part of your growing up? Is it a part of your background or did you kind of discover it at some point? Um, Yes. (laughs) Both. Both. Uh, All the above. All the above. I think, um, you know, I sometimes um, tell my own children and my friends that I think in some ways I had the loveliest of introductions uh, to these teachings in the sense that the words um, Islam and religion uh, were never particularly named around me, mm-hmm. even though so many of the people uh, who loved on me uh, had imbibed these teachings that their whole being was kind of shaped by them. Uh, and I think it really was, you know, that context of um, you know, the fish that's in the ocean doesn't need to have a word mm-hmm. for ocean. Um, and, uh, you know, my father uh, is a huge lover of Sufi teachings mm-hmm. and Sufi poetry. And as is the case with, you know, a large number of people from this tradition, he just seems to have this endless reservoir of um, beautiful mystical teachings and love poetry that he is committed to heart. And in the middle of every conversation, he always seems to have the most perfect anecdote and the loveliest poem that he can just draw from. Um, And, you know, the same in many ways with my mother, with my grandparents and some teachers. 
Um, so this was kind of in the air around me as I was growing up. Um, but I think, as is also the case with a lot of other people, um, I've also seen other faces of religion, and I've seen um, misogynistic, mm-hmm. patriarchal, and quite violent um, practices and interpretation, which for a while kind of made me run <laughs> in the mm-hmm, other direction mm-hmm. as fast and as far as my chubby little legs could mm-hmm. carry me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then, you know, I think as a young adult, it was more a matter of um, more consciously uh, choosing to retrace my steps in a way that seemed authentic to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the things that I've really been thankful for over the years is that I was never handed um, a path as a packaged entity mm-hmm. that I had to either accept or reject, but it was a matter of reading and testing and, uh, and also meeting with extraordinary people. And, um, and here we are. That's fantastic. It, it kind of reminds me of my, my first acquaintance with um, actual Buddhist teaching was when I was in India. I was 18 years old. And uh, my first meditation teacher was S.N. Goenka, in the, and he taught in the context of an intensive 10-day retreat. And the first night of the retreat, so this is really my introduction, Goenka said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. So the first little seed that got planted was, we don't have the only handle on truth. You know, don't think that way. This is not about becoming someone or having an identity. This is about discovering the truth of your life. And and uh, there's so much within the Buddhist teaching, not always lived out fully by any means, but, but held within the actual teaching um, that says, don't believe anything. The, you know, this is a quote from the Buddha who said, don't believe anything just because I said it. Uh, because a great elder has said it, put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. And I always found that a kind of breathtaking view of human nature. Like you can, you can find out yourself, but you have Absolutely. to, you have to test. You have to try. Yeah, um, you know, there's a wonderful story that I remember uh, being told by a teacher one time when I was in Turkey, um, and it actually comes from Rumi's tradition. And Rumi, in so many ways, has been. Um, kind of a guiding light for me and for so many other people. And he has this beloved teacher that really awakens him into who he is uh, named Shams. And Shams walks into a gathering of great scholars, and many of them also interested in the spiritual path. And they're all sitting there telling stories from what the previous teachers had said. Uh, and, you know, he sits there very politely and reverently and listens to them. And after an hour, when it's his turn, he sort of stands up and looks at them and he goes, um, the guy that you were just telling the story from, where is he? And people say, well, he's dead. He's from a few centuries ago. And he turns to the next one. And the one that you were telling from, where is he? He's like, oh, he, he's also dead. He died, you know, 500 years ago. And he goes all around the room asking them, where are the people that they've been speaking of? Mm. And, of course, they're all uh, dead scholars from the past. And, and he says, you're sitting here gossiping about dead people behind <laughs> the back. Uh-huh. Um, and then he says, does the living God have anything that he has said to you, to your heart, directly? Um, which I think is such a powerful lesson 
And, and of course, you know, these are all people who are connected to the ones who've come before them. So mm-hmm. it's not an argument for casting all of the tradition aside, but it is this notion that, you know, this is not a museum. Right. Uh, this has to be a lived and living path that we journey on, and it has to speak to us. It has to move us and inspire us and transform us. Otherwise, we're studying history. Right. Right. No, that's exactly right. And what a beautiful understanding of, of religion, really, and spirituality. Um, and you can see why, you know, so many people uh, on those surveys, they check off you know, none in terms of religious affiliation, and yet they describe themselves as a seeker or uh, really yearning for some sense of meaning in their life apart from the ordinary day-to-day, you know, experiences, whatever they might be. And um, we need, I think, a a very new understanding of every system and uh, be able to, to be able to look much more deeply into where it resonates with us, what we already sense to be true, uh, methods or ways in which we can clarify our, our vision of life and certainly finding one another, which brings us to the the issue of love. So your most recent book is called Radical Love. It's a collection of poems. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what inspired the book for you. And um, I know it's it's different than your previous books, which focus more on the culture of modern Islam. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the... Uh... The truth of the matter is that this is not a book that I set out to write. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I had um, uh, fallen in love with a beautiful lady uh, who lived on the other side of the ocean. Mm. Uh, and we share a commitment to this spiritual path. And uh, she is Swiss and um, lives in Switzerland. And so uh, every day I would sort of sit around my library of amazing books in Persian and Arabic and Turkish and all these other great languages. And uh, I would go through and find one teaching or one story um, that really touched my heart. And I would translate it into a kind of fresh and vibrant um, English translation. And I would send it to her across the ocean. And then, you know, we would spend some time talking about that teaching and what it meant and everything. Um, And after about, you know, a year and a half had gone by, she said, well, uh, you know, my love, I think other people could benefit from these. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. These are just for you. (laughs) Um, And uh, and she said, no, I I really think there's, uh, you know, this has touched my heart too. And I think many other people could benefit from it. So kind of with her permission and blessing, I um, I went back through old letters and, um, you know, text messages and everything and, uh, and compiled them and added some more to them. Um, and, uh, and here's a book. And I think, you know, what I kind of see, um, I'm sitting in my home today surrounded by my uh, lovely, beautiful library, um, which is, you know, a significant attachment <laughs> that I have uh, in this world. And... And as I think about the fact that there's so many extraordinary teachings in here, but they need to be translated, um, and translated not only from Arabic and Persian into modern English, and not even from a medieval language into a modern language. Um, you know, there's 
so many of the teachings which I think are timeless, mm-hmm. um, but the timeless always has to be timely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the timeless always has to speak to us in a language that is resonant uh, with where we are today. Um, so, you know, for example, many of these wonderful, beautiful um, medieval poems are quite long. And, and the medievals had an aesthetic which could absorb a love poem that, it, that takes two or three pages of densely packed metaphors. Mm. Um, and, but I think today, uh, many people, uh, at least in this country and around the world, uh, our aesthetic is a little different. Um, and I think we need something that's a little more spaced out. And even in terms of how they appear on a page, there has to be a blank space that we bring our consciousness to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there might be one or two images that we sit with and we welcome into our hearts. Um, so that was a lot of the work that was involved in these translations was, um, you know, unpacking uh, the layers after layers of metaphors and really distilling them in each case to something that one could sit with as a kind of meditation practice. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And I, I know something that I keep wanting to research more thoroughly and have not yet, but it's like this incredible epidemic, apparently, of loneliness that, yeah. uh, at least in America and now here in England, um, as people respond to different surveys and pieces of research, you know, and, and there's just some tremendous percentage of people who are describing themselves as lonely. And almost as the I think inevitable and and kind of uh, maybe singular antidote to that. It's not everyone is going to find the love of their life, you know, but in terms of romantic love. Um, But here's a quotation from your book, which I think is is a very um, important response to that that kind of crisis. Um, You say, look at who is around you. You may well find that you are in fact surrounded by love, but a love that is in a different guise than romantic love. It may well be that you are not loveless, but quite loved. Look around you and find the sentient beings that give you love and receive your love, be it an old friend, a parent, a child, a pet. Love comes in all hues and fragrances. Love for a friend, a stranger, a parent, a mentor, a lover, a teacher, a sibling, a child, a puppy, a kitten, a garden, a mountain, the woods. Love is love is love. Yeah, you know, it's it's so, uh, this epidemic of loneliness, um, I, which I do see all around, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think we've got maybe more ways than ever before to communicate with one another, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and mm-hmm. letters and, you know, whatever. Uh, pretty soon, I think all kinds of hologramic, hologram kind of, um, <laughs> you know, I think it's around the corner. So we've got more ways of communicating with one another, but in other ways, fewer things to say to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I see this in terms of um, parents and their children. I see this sometimes as partners living in the same house, but each one of them might feel more connected to a group of Facebook friends, 90% of whom they've never met in real mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and so on and so on. And I think people are yearning. People are yearning for that kind of connection and connectivity. And that's when we are happiest. That's when we are most whole is when we are seen. Mm-hmm. When our deep humanity is seen by others. Um, and I think this kind of a mystical existence, um, it is a, a, an awareness of our, our already existing um, connection. Uh, it's our connection with everything that makes us human. It's a connection with fellow human beings. There's that profound connection with the natural world. Uh, I think that it's not, it's not a mystery that when we go for a walk in the woods or hear the sound of running water from a river or stand at the threshold of an ocean or look at a majestic mountain, we don't feel small. We feel connected and significant um, that our life is part of this larger fabric. Um, and from that point of view, I think everything that separates us from our fellow creatures um, brings a kind of pain with it. And every time that we connect, or rather we even see that we are already connected, um, there's a joy that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the, one of the greatest harms that we inflict on ourselves is that we have this whole rainbow of love and, you know, like colors, there's even things beyond the, the red and the purple, the infrared, mm-hmm. and, you know, all these colors that we cannot see. And we've taken all of these hues of love and we've collapsed all of them into not just the romantic love, but even from that, um, if you would, a kind of sexualized, physical, mm-hmm. romantic love. Um, so we've got seven and a half billion people on the planet, and we've persuaded ourselves that love has to come in the form of this one person mm-hmm. or two people. Um, and I think this is madness. Mm-hmm. This is utter madness. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. We've got all kinds of words for living a loveless life, and people talk about being in loveless marriages. Um, but we don't have a word for a loveful mm. existence. Um, and I think actually there is a way of living a loveful existence. Mm. Um, but that means opening ourselves up to all of the different colors of love. Um, as I, you know, as you read in that passage, um, friends, family, neighbors, strangers, uh, teachers, students, um, puppies, um, kittens, uh, the natural world. You know, one of these great mystics that I was reading some time ago, um, you know, he says, can you love? No. If you can love yourself, if you can love a snowfall, that too is real love. That too is radical love. Mm. That's beautiful. Well, part of, you know, I wrote a book called Real Love. and um, Yes. <clears throat> and a beautiful book it is. Thank you. And, you know, one of the struggles, of course, is how in the world do you define love? Because it's a word that's used in so many different ways by different people. And 
everything from a kind of commodification to that singular romantic explosive experience. And um, I finally came down to uh, largely using the word connection, like a profound knowing that our lives are connected. And that's why we can love a stranger because it isn't necessarily an emotional state, but it's this deep, deep acknowledgement that our lives have something to do with one another, that we're actually part of an interdependent, interconnected world. But that's just that's just the truth of things. That's reality. Yes, yes. And it's one of the things I love about um, your book, that you call us back to real love in everyday life, as you put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's such an important insight for people of every tradition. And one aspect of cultivating love that, um, I mean, every aspect of it is intriguing and challenging. And even the very notion that you can cultivate it is it's a bit affronting to some people. You know, I think uh, we can largely think of love as sort of like a gift and you either have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, you're out of luck. Uh, but the idea of cultivating it makes it, for some people, seem kind of cold or mechanical. But certainly within, say, the meditative framework, um, you know, it's believed that what we call love, that what I'm calling love, that profound sense of connection is also born out of paying attention differently. You know, if you go into that store and you look right through the shopkeeper as though they were an object rather than a person, um, there's not going to be a chance of a connection. But if you can remember to look at them, you know, and, and to really fully be there, then you have laid the conditions for a sense of connection to emerge. And so, um, that's just training. That's training one's attention. It is. It is. And, you know, it's one of the things that I started to um, recognize when um, I went back to the East as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and for many years, um, you know, I've gone back to either Turkey or Morocco, other places, um, and, um, you know, take some friends with me on this program that I run. And um, one of the things that I realized is, you know, you talked about the loneliness that people here experience. Mm-hmm. And when I live in Istanbul, um, which is, you know, a city the size of New York City, mm-hmm. um, it, during the course of my day, I would have 20 meaningful conversations mm-hmm. um, that are not necessarily with the people that I set out to meet. But I would go to buy a bottle of water from the guy who runs the grocery store around the corner. And, and it takes 10 minutes because right. he pauses what he's doing and he sees me yeah. and I see him. And we have this conversation in which we're asking about our hearts. Um, I mean, this was something that I wrote about some time ago in many of these cultures. When people want to ask you, how are you doing? The phrase that they use is, what is the state of your heart Mm. right now? Uh, And that's literally the question that everyday ordinary folks ask. How is the state of your heart right now? And it's not a rhetorical question. And they don't say anything after that. Mm. They pause and they create this space, which is an opening and this invitation for you to say, you know, I actually don't really want to tell you how many things I have on my to-do list. And I'm not going to tell you how many items I have in my email inbox. 
but let me tell you what's going on in my heart right now. Mm. And, and you share, and then you also invite them to join you. And there's that profound connection. Mm-hmm. There is that sharing uh, of a deep friendship and intimacy with a guy who's there to sell you water. Right, right. And somehow along the way, he's become a friend. Um, and I think in some ways, you know, we tend to think that that kind of a sense of community uh, can only happen in very small towns or, or if you live in a mm-hmm. particular neighborhood in a large city. Um, this is a city, you know, the size of New York or right. L.A., right. but it's one in which people make a commitment, uh, a commitment to be together. Mm. And I think there, there is, it's not a mystery that as we rise above our own self-centeredness and we reach out to one another in friendship and in love, something beautiful happens. Uh, and so, you know, you asked about how do people define love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of these mystics talk about it in a, um, in a very theological way. You know, for them, love is actually the gushing out of God. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's the outpouring of the divine that brings us into existence. It's that same love that sustains us here. And they're very clear that love is not an emotion. It's not a sentiment. Um, you know, I'm fond of saying that love is not an emoji. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, that we, yeah, we don't text love to each other. Um, love is a path that we have to journey on mm-hmm. to find our way back home. Love is our home and it's our destination at the same time. And the way that I think in a very practical way they teach this, uh, and I've found this quite useful for people of every faith tradition or no faith tradition, for that matter, is to view love as um, journeying beyond our notion of a bounded, finite, isolated self. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we think of we have to love ourselves and it's beautiful to get to actually love our own soul to love our bodies, like how lovely would it be to actually be able to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, you know, you are a beautiful child Mm. of creation. Um, And so you see that kind of overflowing of love, but if the circle of love ends at the threshold of our self, well, okay, congratulations, we're a narcissist. Mm. We love ourselves and nothing more than that. But if you live, let love overflow and rise above yourself and you love, you know, the family that you have around you, that's great. You know, mm. you've gotten beyond yourself and maybe you love your children. Maybe you love your partner. Maybe you love your parents. That's wonderful. That's great progress. But if you stop there, congratulations, uh, you're a nepotist. Mm. Uh, and if you let it overflow some more and you say, okay, I'm going to go beyond the self and beyond the family, I'm going to love everybody that looks like me. Uh, okay, great. You're again making progress and the circle of love is expanding beyond the self, beyond the family. And now you've learned to love everybody that looks like you. 
congratulations, you're a racist. Mm. Uh, and if you let it overflow some more, say, okay, no, 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 not just everybody who, who looks like me, but everybody who lives inside this nation, I will love. Well, you know, congratulations, you're a fervent nationalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you say, oh, no, no, I'm going to go beyond the nation, I'm going to keep expanding the circle of love, beyond the self, beyond the family, beyond the race, beyond the nation. I'm going to have love for everybody who meditates or prays or worships the way that I do. Well, congratulations, you're a religious bigot. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there really is something about love that compels us to keep overflowing until every sentient being is encompassed. Mm. And it's, I think for me, love is this movement that is pushing us, beckoning us, calling us into these ever wider and larger circles where we too are part of this fabric, but where we refuse to put limits around this love mm. until all are included. And I think at that point is when we can say, I cannot be who I want to be until you become everything that you ought to be. Wow, that's so extraordinary. Thank you for that. Um, I want to ask you a question just before I forget. In, yeah. in those cultures like in uh, Istanbul, um, yeah. would you greet a stranger? How is the state of your heart? Or is that based on, like with your, your salesman of the water, is that based on the fact that you'd been in there many times before? You know, uh, these are actually the everyday words for um, in, in Turkish culture, Arab culture, Persian culture, uh, even, uh, you know, Urdu-speaking culture, uh, you ask someone about their hal, which is the state of their heart. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend is likely to want to go into more detail with you, um, and, and a stranger perhaps could give you, you know, a more brief kind of an answer. But no, the greeting is actually identical for a friend and a stranger. I've been reflecting a lot and, and thinking really uh, out loud a lot about the fact that usually when we meet somebody here, our first question is, what do you do? Yes. Right? It's exactly. not like what makes you happy or what's the state of your heart. Lord knows it's not that. Um, you know, but what do you do? Because I'm what trying do you to do? pin exactly. you down to something. And are you worth my time? That's uh, right. You know, or how do I, you know, what, which box do I put you in sort of in some ways? And uh, how how lovely would it be if um, we actually learned about the passions that people have? Like what moves you? What mm-hmm. inspires you? What rejuvenates you? I think these are these would be such a more interesting conversation starter. No, certainly, and I mean, you, you just gave a beautiful description uh, of how community forms and. Um, in these lonely times when um, if we weren't trying to like pin someone down or you're this or you're that, you're, you know, two degrees similar to me, but you're really very different or I find nothing of myself in you, um, we would find a lot. We'd find ourselves in one another and it really would be uh, a more loving kind of community. But we're very busy, you know, with um, what do you do or 
these days, you know, uh, religious affiliation um, means a lot in terms of what we are um, projecting yes. uh, onto that system, whatever it is. And, um, you know, I've had kind of more of the recent experience in terms of Buddhist teaching of going from the kind of uh, mass projection being one of, oh, you're kind of like a quietist, you just want to sit and gaze at your navel, you know, to uh, kind of the disgraceful state of Buddhism and uh, some Buddhist um, sects in, in terms of places yeah. like Burma or Myanmar, you know, where I was like, oh, you're the people, you know, and it's like, whoa, um, it, it's quite amazing, you know, to feel like one's inner search and uh, the the bounties, the abundance, the joys of that, whatever the gifts we have been given or have, have been revealed to us through um, the poetry of old or our own experiences and our creation of community um, also get reduced in a way to a label. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, it's a, you know, there's that wonderful um, quote that's attributed to so many people that uh, the definition of insanity is to do something over and over again mm-hmm. and expect a different result. You know, I pay attention to people's eyes when they talk about how busy they are. Mm-hmm. It's never joyful. Uh, no one, uh, I've no one I've ever seen is like you know I'm so busy I'm so busy <laughs> and it replenishes my heart. Right. You know, like there's always this kind of agony <laughs> that they have of exhaustion, like they've been beaten into submission, uh-huh. um, and yet we find ourselves into you know in this kind of a race that maybe none of us would willingly choose mm-hmm. to to be in. Um, so I think. Part of this more intentional, this um, kind of more mindful type of existence and a loving existence is uh, to, to choose a different method of being together, to, uh, to seek a different awareness. And, you know, so many people have this awareness when it comes to what we put into our body. Mm-hmm. You know, they might read ingredients or they might check to see if something is, I don't know, organic mm-hmm, or fair mm-hmm. trade or not. Or, you know, um, this has never been um, a path that I have pursued too much. But uh, some people are really into a kind of uh, physical fitness and exercise and mm-hmm. a regiment that way. Um, but we don't seem to yet have the wisdom on how do we change how we look at one another, mm-hmm. how do we speak with one another. And, you know, one that I'm thinking a lot about these days because of so many of the conversations that are around us, um, how do we touch one another? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think we are, like, we are in an age that, um, because of the very necessary uh, Me Too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, intervention, um, many, many people are much more aware of unwanted touch mm-hmm. and unwanted physical advances. Um, again, kind of going back to that, um, those connections in the East, um, this is on that um, Illuminated Tours uh, program mm-hmm. that I run every summer in Turkey. The same grocery store owner that I was telling you about, mm-hmm. when he's talking with me, and when he's asking me how my heart is, he very gently places his arm on my shoulder or on my arm. 
mm-hmm. as he's speaking with me. And there's such a wanted and welcomed tenderness in that touch. Uh, there's a friendship in that touch. And that's part of what I'm kind of also thinking about is what would it mean for us to have a, these are big words and grand words, a mystical practice or spiritual practice where it is about the heart, but it's also about how we look at one another, how we speak with one another, how we touch one another in a way that is always affirming and invited and welcomed and nurturing mm-hmm. and never anything other than that. Well, you know, as you know, you know, it's, it's, it's quite difficult sometimes to try to take the, um, the very real gifts of, of those cultures without some of the baggage in terms of yes. the way women are treated or, yeah. Uh, you know, homophobia or whatever, you know, is right. also right. pretty rampant. I mean, certainly, I, you I, know, I, we experience it, you know, I experience it every day in a way of, uh, not because I'm a woman, but because I'm I'm someone in a line of a lineage, you know, of transmission um, of teachings that were nurtured and uh, created and, and nurtured in the, in the East uh, for so long, you know, and... Now here we are. I remember one um, very lovely uh, teacher I met in Burma, um, and uh, I guess I was I was doing loving kindness practice, which is a particular method of meditation. And uh, he said something to me like, "Oh, when you when you go back west, you'll be you'll be such a, a lovely teacher of this for women." And I kind of, I was trying to figure out how to say, it doesn't work that way, you know. I don't only teach women. Like, men come too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and I think, you know, in in, in some ways, um, uh, there has to be this recognition that all of these spiritual teachings have um, beautiful gems um, that are covered in shit. Mm Mm-hmm. And the shit has to be washed away um, before we can get or as we are getting to the gems and the jewels. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think particularly issues of gender and sexuality are mm-hmm. among them. Um, so is a deep kind of elitism mm-hmm. that I tend to find, um, which is very much present in my own tradition. Um, you know, not only and, and they're beautiful teachings. Um, about men and women, and there's beautiful teachings by female mystics, some of which I've translated in the in the Radical Love book. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also, you know, grotesque um, characterization of men and women, um, and and there's also a deeply and profoundly elitist attitude that the ones who sit on a mountaintop and meditate are the really blessed, illuminated ones. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the everyday folk who are mired in the toil of everyday work. Mm -hmm. Um, And and for me, the deeper I go into this teaching, uh, no, there is a dignity in work, and there is a sacredness to that everyday life that we have. Mm -hmm. And mountaintops are lovely. And I love me some mountaintops, and I love me some oceans Mm -hmm. and some forests, but in some ways, the real 
test of this kind of love is also when you're standing in the middle of your loved ones, your community, your neighborhood, your family, and you're already tired and exhausted, but you still got to prepare something to put on the table. Mm-hmm. And can we do that graciously? Can we do that with a smile? Can we do that lovingly when we're not at our best? Mm-hmm. Um, I find that to also be uh, an indication of the maturity of the spiritual path. Um, so I, I am in wholehearted kind of agreement with you um, that that we got to somehow find a way of, of separating um, the lovely and the still relevant um, from what really has outlived its usefulness. Mm-hmm. That's great. Do you have a passage, by the way, or two from Radical Love that you'd like to read? I do. I, I do. And, um, you know, since we were talking about uh, this beautiful idea that uh, you have in your book also, uh, the Real Love book, about uh, connection and connectivity, mm-hmm. uh, this is one of my favorite poems, um, uh, which is a Rumi poem that I translated um, freshly. Uh, it's called You and I. Um, and uh, so this is uh, spoken to a friend, and it's just put as a friend. Um, you know, it could be a lover, it could be a teacher, it could be a friend, it could be a partner or a parent. Um, he says, a faithful friend, come closer. Let go of a you and an I. Come quickly. And then here's the part that just really touched my heart the first time I read it. He says, you and I have to live as if you and I never heard of a you and an I. Mm. And, you know, that, that, that part, um, I think the reason that it touched me so deeply is, um, you know, I think many of us have been in uh, friendships, in relationships, um, maybe even in um, more long-term relationships that are filled with a kind of anguish and pain. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you turn into a kind of um, accountant service. Mm. Uh, you know, I did the dishes. It's your turn to do this. Right. I took out the trash. It's your turn to do this. And, and instead, he's sort of calling us to live in a notion of reciprocity um, where what if we let go of this notion of where I end and you begin and we reach out to one another in kindness and tenderness in love in togetherness but it has to be reciprocal mm-hmm. um, because also one way love um is is painful yeah. love one way love can 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 uh, bring a level of um its own kind of agony mm-hmm. um and uh there's a and I think for, you know, for people in this tradition, which is um, uh, a theistic tradition, it, it uses that God language, mm-hmm. those moments of feeling that deep sense of connection and connectivity is also the closest that we come to experiencing God here. Um, there's, if I could maybe read one other mm-hmm. poem. Yeah, please do. Uh, here. Um, 
you know, there's this beautiful poem that Rumi also has where he, he's experiencing real love, this radical love, and it's love personified. So he talks about, you know, um, he, he's, he's visualizing this love that is emerging out of his heart, and, um, and it's not quite human, uh, but he doesn't know what to call it. So he starts speaking to love, and this is what he says. He says, last night I became love-crazed. Love saw me and said, I've come. Don't shout. Say nothing. I said, love, I'm afraid of something else. Love said, there is nothing else. Say nothing. Let me whisper secrets in your ear. Say nothing. I said, what a beauty. Are you an angel or a human? Love said, not an angel, not a human, say nothing. So this is like when, you know, you see like Rumi and the poet and the lover freaking out. It's like, if you're not a human and if you're not an angelic being, that just leaves God, right? Mm. I said, what is this? Say it. Love said, stay like this, say nothing. And then he finally comes out, Rumi says, I said, my heart isn't this God? Love said, yes, my child, but hush, say nothing. Mm, so beautiful. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think there's something about this, um, this way of being with our fellow human beings that um, it, it's where we detect that we're already, whatever you want to call it, God, the sacred, the mm-hmm. universe, mm-hmm. the one, um, to experience that oneness, that unity uh, here and, and now, and um, not in some hereafter, not in some mythical or real other realm, but right here when we are breathing. Mm. Uh, and I think that, that for me is also uh, one of the features that all of these mystical teachings have in common is that they bring us back, they call our attention uh, into the, the here and now. Um, and I think, you know, maybe one uh, other thing that I'll, I'll add is, um, you know, you, we started out by talking about how this book in, um, in some ways is a different mm-hmm, book than mm-hmm. some of what I've done before. A lot of my work before has been on uh, social justice debate, uh, gender reform and pluralism and opposition to extremism and violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's true. I think the tone is, is quite different. Um, but I also see a connection and a deep connection that I think it's important to point out. Um, and many of these sages say this, and they say this very openly and clearly, that what we mean by justice is love when it moves into the public square. Mm. And, you know, people can have very fancy terms about justice and social justice. I think here's, well, here's basically what we're talking about. Everybody is somebody's baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we are who we are because somebody loved us and somebody loved on us. It might have been your mama or your daddy, or it might have been somebody else who helped raise you, or it might have been a teacher or a friend. But we are alive because somebody loved us. 
Um, and for some of us, we have our own babies. Um, and I know what I want for my babies, and I know the people whose baby I am, what they want for me. Mm-hmm. They want dignity in my bones. They want a roof over my head. They want joy and tranquility and happiness in my heart and some food in my belly. And justice ultimately is this. It's just a recognition that other people love their babies as much as I love my own baby or as much as the people whose baby I am wish for me. Mm. That we would want for another the same thing through this kind of love. So I I actually do feel the need uh, in this very moment that I think we as a nation and we Mm. as a world community are really struggling with how do we live together and how do we live together not in spite of our differences, but because of our differences, through our differences and particularities, uh, that we got to bring that love conversation, that real love, that radical love, back into uh, the public arena. And to say this is also a work of love and that love shouldn't just be relegated to love songs and romantic movies Love is also about how we treat the neighbor and mm-hmm. the stranger mm-hmm. and the friend and our own being. Um, and the same love that when it moves out, we call it justice, the same love can also move inward, and that's when we call it tenderness. Mm. Um, and I think that's an insight that I'm still sitting with, and I hope to continue to learn with and learn from um, in these next few years of my life, mm. because a lot of the people that I've so admired in terms of their public demeanor, there is a fierceness and there's a boldness mm-hmm. and an audaciousness to them. But there's also this recognition that when you get them one-on-one, they're radically tender people. Mm. Uh, and that the same insistence on being a radical force for change and transformation and love in the world doesn't give you license to bulldoze the people in your inner circle. Mm -hmm. And somehow I think there's a lot of growing that we all have to do and I have to do Mm. about this need to balance um, the loving manifestation as justice outwardly and as tenderness inwardly. That's so fantastic. And before I let you go, I just want to talk about Hamilton for a moment because oh, it's not yeah. always that I'm in this position. I think my, uh, well, I, I included uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton in my grateful acknowledgments for real love because seeing it had been so usually important for me. And I realized when I, I had like uh, kept insisting that my friends see it and my friend Joseph Goldstein finally saw it. And I said to him, how did you like it? And and he said, I really liked it, but I didn't have a transcendent experience. And oh, that's when I realized, oh, that's what they, That's how I'm speaking of it, because I did have a transcendent experience. Absolutely. So absolutely. say something to me before you go. Well, listen, Hamilton for me is a transcendent experience. And, and it's a transcendent experience that I share with my daughter. Mm. Um, the, the three of us, have uh, memorized 
every word <laughs> of so every song. And nothing gives us more pleasure than going about our everyday life when someone unrelated to Hamilton says something that we can connect back to Hamilton. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, like, look around, look around, right. you know. And, and we don't even have to say it. We just have to like, make that eye contact and we know that she knows, that I know, that we know. Um, and I'd say one of the things that I love so much about Hamilton, uh, Lin-Manuel and all of these fabulous actors and actresses, so many of them people of color who just breathe life into this genre for so many of us. Um, one of the things that I love is the way that they talk about America is the way that I want us to be talking about our spiritual tradition. Mm -hmm. The way that they see America as this deeply flawed experiment mm -hmm. where there are slaves and enslaved people, and there is misogyny, and there is the old boys network, but there's also something worth saving, and there is this as-of-yet unfinished dream mm -hmm. and unfinished symphony. And that's how I see our spiritual traditions. They're not perfect because we're not perfect. Mm -hmm. And none of the human beings who have conveyed these teachings have been perfect. But there's still something worth savoring mm -hmm. and something worth enjoying, uh, even as we grapple with our own imperfection and the imperfection of, of um, the teachings and the teachers who've come down uh, to us previously. That's so exciting. So you and I will have to get together somewhere, East Coast or anywhere, forward. and we'll just... Anywhere, we'll, anywhere. And your daughter will just throw quotes at one another. <laughs> uh, she, she, she would, and, and you know, <laughs> she has the voice of an angel. And one of the great oh. joys of my life was getting to take her to New York. Um, and I just sat there, um, with, you know, with tears kind yeah. of coming down my face yeah. during the whole performance. And really my hat's off to Lin-Manuel for having created such a lasting uh, tribute. There, there is still hope for America. Yes. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if America can produce Hamilton, there's still hope for America. All right. Thank you so much. Well, and really, thank you uh, for joining me today. It's been so beautiful to spend some time with you, and I'm sure Absolutely. the people listening in will agree. So... To learn more about Omid, you can go to www.beherenownetwork.com slash Omid, O-M-I-D. Thank you. Thank you for listening. As part of today's podcast, you can download a free guided meditation on opening the heart, led by Sharon. To redeem, simply visit SharonSalzberg.com forward slash store and use the coupon code OMEDPODCAST to purchase Opening the Heart Meditation. That's OMEDPODCAST, O-M-I-D-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Enjoy!